We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run, always chasing, never stopping. Hello, hello, you chasers of excellence. Patrick here with a quick introduction to today's show. As we occasionally do, we are sharing a conversation that Ben recently had on another podcast. This week, we are sharing one that Ben had with DJ Hillier from the MyFit podcast. MyFit is spelled M-I-F-I-T. So go search for that wherever you listen to your podcast. DJ has a whole bunch of really good guests from inside the CrossFit space and a lot from outside the CrossFit space. So highly recommend you guys check him out and check out his show. The big reason I really like sharing these episodes with you is that Ben and I often have, I mean, we have lots of conversations and we've, we have had lots of conversations and we tend to try to focus pretty narrowly in on an idea and we try to explore that idea for, you know, 30, 45 minutes. And the reason I like sharing these conversations is because they allow us to get really broad where oftentimes we get really specific here. And so sharing conversations like this is really nice, I think, because it allows us, uh, it allows Ben to sort of encapsulate what we've talked about over many, many episodes into one episode. And so uh, I like them as a nice reminder of the big ideas that we often talk about here. I hope you like them for that reason, amongst others as well. Again, this is a conversation from the MyFit podcast. Thank you, DJ, for letting us share this conversation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. Ben and I will be back with another episode next week. But until then, enjoy. Somewhere I want to start is one of my favorite things about you and your, and your coaching style is your ability to bring in the mental game and help your athletes between the ears, which is something I hope we can really dive into today. But in order to set the table, I'm first curious to know, Ben, what was the moment in your coaching career where you realized the importance of the mental game? And when you realized that, where did you start? Yeah, so it's probably before I was a coach. So before I was a coach, I was an athlete um, in the CrossFit space and otherwise, and I didn't have a good head game. So I knew firsthand how detrimental that was to my performance. And I knew that if I was able to, I didn't know. I hypothesized that had I had a better head game, I would have been a more formidable athlete. I just believe that we work so hard to create this physical potential. You have a certain VO2 max, you can bench press so much, you can do so many pull-ups, you can run a certain mile, you can row a 2K in a certain time. Okay, that's your physiological potential. And then from there, we put these, we're unable to access all of it because of the things that we're saying in our heads. And if we were to pop the lid off of that, gosh, it would be, and this is what I'm speaking from case number, user number one, if I would had been able to pop the lid of that, I know I'm so confident that I would have been a stronger athlete. So when I got into the space, obviously I geeked out about all the physiology and the training programs and how much rest we should be doing and what to do in terms of linear progressions or, you know, auto-regulation or whatever, whatever the programming du jour is, but I knew equally as important didn't know, again, hypothesize that equally as important was this, um, for lack of a better term, mental toughness. And mental toughness is nothing more than the ability to stay focused. 
And the opposite of focus is distraction. So what we are all distracted by all the time is not as much the heat, not as much the weight on the bar, not as much um, um, the, the crowd or the, 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 the distractions that come in through the five senses. Those are easy to recognize and easy to go, oh, I'm distracted. When you're doing work and a, um, there's a car accident outside, you're distracted from your work, really obvious. The way less obvious distractions are the ones that you don't, you're not aware of, but they are pulling you away from your performance. In the case of the car accident outside, it's so obvious how that stopped you in your tracks. What people don't recognize is that that's happening at a fraction of a scale all the time from the moment, all the, like all the time, not even like when people go to walk on the field, not when they walk on the court, not when they walk on the ice or the rink, or whatever it might be. It's happening all the time. It's happening when you see the workout posted for the next day. All of a sudden right now, you got this little thing in your head and it's why I've kind of coined this. Are you... The first thing is become aware of that voice. And are you being a coach? Is that vo voice coaching you the way you would want a really productive coach that would give you a better chance of winning? Or is it acting more like a critic, which is what most of the time is happening for most of us. There are the few that are already super mentally tough and focused and frame things the right way. But for me and most other people, that's not the case. And we have to work towards framing things away from being the critic who just put a little definition to that. The critic is the one who sits on the sidelines, not on the playing field, pointing out the faults and shortcomings of those who are actually participating. That's usually what's going on in most of our heads. It's shouldn't have had that cookie last night. You can't keep up with them. Uh, go a little bit easier right now so you can save it for tomorrow. Even those small little shifts, those small little nag, nag, nags are way different than a Imagine if you had the most productive coach that you've ever come across in your head all the time. So that's where I, 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 I started with um, thinking that it was equally um, as important. And then throughout the years, you see it manifest. You see it a lot, whether it's Katrin uh, failing to hit the rope climbs at regionals and failing to make the games, which is completely a mental thing where stress gets too high, distraction gets too high, and it stops her inner tracks. That's the car accident. Or it's the smaller, little more nuancy things where you see athletes just um, get these subtle distractions along the way. They're not in the place they thought they would be. You know, so they had these expectations. Expectations are horrific. So expectations are the reason that a lot of coaches use negative um, feedback as a motivator. Nobody thinks that you can win this game. Well, all that they're doing there is lowering expectations. So they're lowering distractions. If nobody thinks that you can win this game and you get distracted, it's like, oh, well, no one thought we could win anyway. So you let, it's an easier way to get into a flow state than going, listen, every single person thinks that you're going to win. Now it's like you, you either meet expectations or you lose. So there's a lot of tricks and tactics along the way, but I'm, I'm, I am passionately convinced that the mindset piece, you can't think your way into shape. You can't think your way into being an elite athlete, but once you train yourself there, it is a huge differentiator in the levels of ability once you're there. Sure. 
um, I had Justin Sua on the show a couple of times. I think you might be awesome. familiar with him. Big, and big Justin things, fan. Yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. One of the things he talks about is mental toughness is more, it's actually mental flexibility. How flexible are you able to, when adversity strikes, when the plane gets delayed, how flexible can you be going, Hey, it's okay. And this is why I think, what are you, what are your thoughts on mental flexibility instead of the words, mental toughness? Yeah, I love it. I don't like the words mental toughness anyway, because there's too much, um, uh, baggage that comes along with it because they associated with the word toughness in general it's heavy metal grit your teeth um sprain your ankle stay in the game that's not mental toughness mental toughness is not being distracted it's ability to focus if you want to call it being flexible i love that terminology but the idea is when it happens and it's going to happen when it happens how quickly can you let it pass through you when it happens this is it's just there's an event, there's a trigger that triggers something through the five senses. That trigger creates a thought. The thought leads to an emotion and the emotion creates a physiological response in the body. That is the sequence that happens. So there is an event, your plane gets delayed. That creates, that is the, you hear that happen or you see it on the screen. It comes in through the five senses. From there, you have a thought, oh, crap now i'm going to be late oh this sucks now i'm gonna be stuck in the airport for three hours oh crap now my wife is going to be pissed at me because she's already upset that i took this trip and now so the thought comes that leads to an emotion anxiety guilt fear trepidate whatever it is which leads to a physiological state literally what happens is your arteries close up less blood gets to the working muscles you can't remove the waste products as well. You get shortness of breath. You go in from a rest and repair, rest and relax state to a fight or flight, which leads to sickness. It's like, that's what happens when you are in chronic, not acute. Acute is awesome. We want that. That's a workout. That's getting a cold plunge. That's public speaking. Acute stress, good. That's called eustress, E-U stress. Eustress, super beneficial. Lots of physiological health benefits come from that. Chronic stress is the constant. Now I'm in traffic and I go from traffic to a job I don't like to um, a job to cafeteria with crappy food. And I hear people gossiping about me to checking my cell phone and not liking the comments on my posts, not getting enough likes to going back to the job and the boss saying, now you got to work on the weekends and how can we get this project done? And it's late and your coworkers falling through. And now we're living this constant, constant chronic stress state. And that's what destroys our health. You can not out-train and not out-eat stress. You can't do it. It can help, but it, also, it, also, it could also exacerbate. If you're the type of person that's so stressed, because stress is stress. The stress we put our bodies through in workouts is stress. If you give it too much, it's no longer EU stress. It's the bad stress, the stress that we all think about. Here's the other part of that, which is what we think about. The way we interpret the stress yes. actually is the thing that determines the how the stress manifests itself, which is, again, go back through the timeline. There's a trigger. What do you think about the trigger? And that's where it goes in these divergent directions. If you think it's bad, you'll end up in a poor physiological state. If you believe the stress is beneficial, you end up in a good place, which is you know Jocko's good thing, like everything that happens. Got broke your ankle, got injured, uh, mission got canceled, um, uh, lost your job, found out that your wife cheated on you, good. 
Like all of those things can make you a more formidable human being if you frame them the right way. We are just the sum of our experiences. That's all this thing is. We're all just sitting on this piece of dirt floating around in vast empty space, having experiences. Yet we're so quick and we so badly, because it's part of our evolutionary biology, we so badly and intuitively label things as good or bad. When we really have no perspective whatsoever, and we have no right to label them as good or bad, because some of the worst things that could we could possibly, most cancer patients, if you gave them the option, would not forego having cancer. Now, obviously, if they die, that's something different. But most cancer patients think that it is one of the most beneficial things that's happened in their lives because it gave them a different perspective and closeness to relatives, and they have a different take on life than they would have had otherwise. Now, none of them, I should say not, most of them in the moment think it's her, all of us do. It's like cancer, bad. Well, if most of them would rather have had the cancer, this is the same thing with a lot of kids that are diagnosed at birth with um, um, diseases. When they get to be certain ages, if they were brought up in the right environment, they actually would, if you gave them the option of not having the disease, they say, no, I wouldn't be who I am without this. I'm like that with dyslexia. I have dyslexia. I'm grateful and glad I had dyslexia, but now in the present moment, I wasn't that. And I would, would have, because society told me to, labeled that as bad. But yet I know I would not be the person I am today if it wasn't for that quote shortcoming, that quote adversity, that quote, but it's not these things. We just label them some certain which ways. So when you are stuck in traffic, when you miss the red light, when boss says you gotta work on the weekends, we don't need to kind of go, whoa, that's bad, just let it go. It's only bad when we put it inside of us and don't let it pass through. We put it inside of us, hold on to it, crap, and we even worse, we resist it. We try to change it instead of just letting the ripples of the water kind of dissipate, we make it a mess and we splash even more. And now this one little moment, having to work on a Saturday, turns to this big thing of like, I hate my job, I hate my boss, I'm not respected. And it becomes this self-repilling prophecy where we're assigning meaning to things that aren't really there. And that's the biggest problem that most of us have as humans is we don't experience reality. We experience the, the story we head. tell, the right. story we tell about our realities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so cool. Another thing I wanna get into that I love, really love your coaching style, but I don't think there's a lot of information out there yet on it is being a transformational coach. And you've been on the record on Mark Bell's podcast saying that you truly won't know how well you did with an athlete until they are 10 years removed from the sport. I'm curious, Ben, for those that don't know the difference between transformational and transactional, can you unpack that and then maybe give some examples of, I'm sure there's coaches out there, Ben, who are like, yeah, I want to be more transformational, but how can I be more like that? Can we kind of paint that picture? Yeah. So if you're a basketball coach, a transactional coach, uh, makes the person a better basketball player. And they measure that based off of either individual statistics or wins and losses. It's very uh, black and white X's and O's, but the, when the athlete is done playing basketball, they have to leave all those skills on the court. They're not changing them outside the realm of the activity. Whereas a transformational coach works from the inside out and all of the skills that they're learning are transferable transform outside of the actual activity or endeavor. So the example there would be as a basketball coach, you teach someone the pick and roll, you teach someone how to um, follow through with their fingertips on a shot, you teach them how to do a full court press, you teach them, you get it, X, 
you know, dribble drive offense, pick whatever it is. Whereas the transformational coach doesn't of still teaches all those things, but also teaches them how to deal with adversity, how to problem solve, how to be a better teammate, how to um, um, have a better work ethic, how to prioritize things. Those skills are transferable outside of basketball. And that's why you're not going to know part of what you, you're not going to know is how someone is, because that takes a long time. And you're not going to know until they leave the sport, because everything we're doing right now is focused on the sport. And if they can't transfer it to something else, I think we missed a lot of the point of what we're supposed to be doing as coaches. As coaches, yes, one of the roles and one of the responsibilities is to improve the performance on the field. But the other one is to be a leader, a role model, and uh, a spirit guide, a yoga, uh, be Yoda for Luke Skywalker and teach them not just about the force, but about life in general. In terms of some, um, some examples, like a transactional coach would be somebody like, I would I'd argue like Bobby Knight, you know, a, a um, former basketball coach at uh, Indiana would, um, he won a lot. He, he won a real lot, but uh, I don't necessarily think he, he made people of stronger character. Whereas a transformational coach would be someone like John Wooden, where it was all about the person. You know, he, that's where I got never, never whine, never complain, never excuses. That's a John Wooden quote. Mm. Never lie, never cheat, never steal. John Wooden quote. It was all about, um, or um, the New Zealand All Blacks, better people make better athletes. That's all about, you know, if you can be a better person in the locker room, a better teammate, that's going to make a better athlete. But I think that the, the, the best example of a transformational coach I've ever seen is Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. He's, he's uh, I mean, that's, that's definition. It's like, and I haven't seen season two, but I'm guessing in season two, maybe, it, I don't know if it changes or not, but season one of Ted Lasso, any coach that hasn't seen that, it's like, it should be like what must watch, like part of your CEUs. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about, for those that haven't seen Ted Lasso, what is a conversation? What are some of the words? What are some of the conversation points? Paint me a picture of what that looks like from a coach to an athlete. If they want to be more transformational, what type of things that should they be asking? Well, the first, you can't, um, you can't do it if, if you're not, if you're faking the funk yourself. So that's just so unauthentic and it's going to be so transparent. Um, so the best way to do it is not to tell, it's not even to ask, it's just to do. And the way that you act. So if you want your athletes to be more patient, if you don't want them to get rattled, if you want them to overcome adversities, it, the best teacher is example. So it's kind of like, it doesn't matter. I can't hear what you're saying because your actions speak so loudly. Hmm. So as a, any sort of leader, the most important thing we can do is lead from the front and play the part. Um, but then the next part is what you just alluded to is uh, ask questions. Um, that's just a, it's, it's instead of just telling, 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 help them or allow them to help themselves by trying to find out the answers for themselves. And there, I wish I was better at this, but a lot of coaches, really good coaches, all they do is ask questions. And that's, um, I think if you know the tactic, it could get a little annoying, mm -hmm. but if you don't, it's incredibly powerful because it forces the athlete to figure things out on their own. And when they figure it on their own, they, they're much more likely to buy in because uh, they can feel like they came up with it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Well, the, I had Dr. Jim Lair on the podcast. He's a world-renowned sports psychologist. And uh, one of the quotes that really hit me hard was, who you become as a result of the chase is the most important thing. And it was like light bulb moment. Like, that's it right there. That is transformational leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not about um, what you accomplish. It's who you become. It's not about the awards, the accolades, the trophies, or the podiums. We, those are nice. Those are really nice. But, you know, again, a little bit of perspective is like, the, for what? I, I, I get it. Like maybe it's uh, earning potential, take care of your family. Those are noble things. Um, but I think that the most important thing is, are you becoming a better man, woman, father, mother? Are you becoming a better um, member of society? Because I believe that we are all here on pl- this planet for one reason, and that is to evolve, to become the best versions of ourselves in mind, body, and spirit. So that's why I love what I do, because I get to touch all those things. And it's not just what I think a lot of coaches do, which is body. Let's make them stronger, fitter, faster. It's mind, body, and spirit. And when those things come together, that's when we've created these more, you know, badass humans, which is what we're, we should all be, you know, whether everything on planet earth is here to do that is to evolve. And, you know, there's that saying that earth is a place where souls have come to evolve. It's like, because, because here we actually get challenges in heaven. There's nothing there's, you get everything you want. So it's, it's a bummer. There's nothing to even wish or want for. There's nothing to overcome. There's nothing to learn because it's all just handed to you. This is the place where gods come to evolve. So I believe that that's what we're here to do. And if we can take that onus on as coaches to bring that to our athletes, as leaders, take that to our communities, as um, athletes ourselves realize that that's really what we're here to do. All of a sudden, every little bump in the road doesn't become a, um, a thing to moan about. It becomes a, yes, here we go. It becomes the opportunity. Only through struggle do we evolve. It's the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. If you cut the cocoon open for them, it dies on the floor. It needs the struggle. It has to have adversity. That's what makes us the best versions of ourselves. Um, as, I, as my listeners know, I've, one of my favorite things to talk about is mindset. And I think, and I've talked to a lot of sports psychologists, you've had them on your show too, and experts in the mindset field. And I think one of the missing components, Ben, is the ability to kind of create frameworks and put the psychology into writing. And I think Carol Dweck probably is the, did it the best of the game when she underlined the difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. You've created some frameworks, and I really want to get into those to help grasp the mental game a little more. Would you mind taking some time to go through the hierarchy of the victim? pessimist, optimist, realist, and curious mindset. Talk a little bit about yeah. what that looks like. It's one of my favorite pieces of content that you've put out. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of the struggles is um, there. So if you want to go to the gym and you want to get fitter, it's really easy to know where you are and how you're progressing. Because on day one, you run a 10 minute mile, you can bench press 95 pounds, and you can do zero pull-ups. Well, at six months, you can um, run an eight minute mile. You can do two pull-ups. You can bench press 130. It's so, it's so um, visceral. It's so there. There's feedback. There's metrics. There's a hierarchy you can climb. Now I know and you can identify strengths and weaknesses. And every day you kind of, there's even a leaderboard for most gyms. But when we talk about mindset, it's, 
okay, Carol Dweck gave us a nice one, but it's a little binary of are you fixed or growth? And once you're like, okay, I know I can learn and it's not inherited. Well, I know that I can grow into what I want to become. It's not predestined. Then we kind of have that. And we're kind of left to like you know, swim around in one of those two oceans. Are you in the blue ocean or the red ocean? Hopefully people realize that the fixed mindset is detrimental and that we should be in the, the growth mindset aspect. But from there, we're kind of left rudderless. And that's the reason I kind of created this framework. And the, the way the framework goes is a level one mindset, which is the lowest level of mindset anybody can have. And I believe it's the most detrimental thing somebody could do to themselves is to have a victim mindset. And the victim mindset says, why is this happening to me? They are actually think, they actually believe that the world is out to get them and that there are obstacles purposely placed in front of them. The next level above that, the level two is the victim, is the, is the pessimist mindset. And the pessimist doesn't necessarily think that it's not why, but it's, oh, this is going to suck. This is terrible. Of course, it's raining today. And they look at, you know, it's a glass half empty type thing. The level above that, which most people aspire to be is the top, I believe it's the middle, is the optimist. The optimist, everyone knows the glass half full and, you know, maybe even farther than that, it might be like everything is going to be fine. Everything is great. And there's sunshine and rainbows and unicorns growing in my backyard. Um, it's going to be okay, guys, because X, Y, and Z. The, when you dig into it a little bit, though, what you realize is the pessimist and the optimist are not... Uh, there, the optimist is not always better. <laughs> a lot of times the pessimist will out, will beat the optimist. Like if you're a prisoner of war, the optimist, the pessimist will, will live longer. If um, you're a salesman, a lot of times the pessimist will be better because they'll quickly close down a sale that they don't believe will sell. And they're going to go and figure out all the reasons the customer is going to say no. Whereas the optimist goes like, let's go get it, guys. We're going to kill this one. The other, uh, the other problem with the optimists is that they lack a really important thing in athletics and in life, which is called bracing. And because they always are, this is going to be great. It's going to be fine. When it's not fine, their foundation shatters. So it's okay, guys. I know that we're this um, new COVID thing is out here, but it's only going to last two weeks. In two weeks, all the kids will be back in school. And that was in... March, and then all of a sudden, the next school year doesn't happen, and they're destroyed. It's the same reason that the optimists don't live as long in prisoner war camps, because it's, it's okay, guys, we're gonna be out by Christmas. Christmas comes and goes. It's okay, guys, we're gonna be out by Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day comes and goes, and it comes all the way back to next Christmas, and they die of a broken heart, whereas the pessimists go like, we're never getting out of here. <laughs> and But the person that lives the longest is the realist. And the realist goes, we may get out of here. We may not. That's reality. In fact, we don't even need, we can, it's, it's kind of obvious that there is good and there is bad in life. Why do we have to be the pessimist or the optimist? There is, um, there is good and bad things that happen. And they also realize that thinking is what labels those things as good as bad. It's what Shakespeare said is there is no good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So the realist realizes that the stock market is going to go down and it's going to come back up. And they don't freak out when there's a correction. 
They don't even freak out when it's a bear market or a recession because they know everything has a season. There is a time for sickness. There is a time for health. Every single person you know is going to be sick at some point. Now, if you freak out when you get sick, that's ridiculous. Everything has a season. It's like freaking out every time it's winter. Like everything, you need a season. Businesses are going to have their ups and downs. People are going to have their ups and downs. Nature has its ups and it's It's a part of life on this planet. That's a cool place for all of us to aspire to. And I believe we can all get there. But we're not going to go to one level and sit on that level. It's like, now I'm here. And I, you know, it's not like the, the, the door closes behind you. And now you get to live on level two. And you rise to level three. And now you live on level. We're bouncing between these levels all the time. This is what's so phenomenal about our sport is that in a singular workout, you go through all four of those things super quickly. At one point, you're killing it. You're awesome. It's like the next year you're down and next year up. Of course, I'm going to win. I'm going to lose. And fit. you're all over and like, this sucks. And why me? <laughs> it's all these things. If we play with this hierarchy enough, and it really comes down to awareness, it's just, a, it's when you feel yourself being triggered and the thought comes in your head, where would you place that thought? Just give it, where would you put it? So something happened, a trigger, you have a thought. If you can assign it before an emotion comes, holy smokes, you are an enlightened being. This is, that is literally what enlightenment is. You can't be touched. And that's why the level five is called the warrior mindset. I changed it. It's the warrior mindset because true warriors, like the samurais that are, have beaten everyone in the dojo and everyone in their country now go out and search the earth for a worthy opponent. They, what they want more than anything else is to be challenged. Because they know what we talked about earlier, that growth happens on the other side of challenges. So why would we avoid challenges? We don't even want summer at that point. We want winter. Like we want the, it's like the, the, the doomsday preppers. Like they actually want the world to end. They want to see if they're ready. It's not, they're not doing all this work for nothing. They want to put it up. They want the zombies to come. They want the electrical blackout. They want whatever it is that they think is going to happen, the natural disaster. And that's what, when you can, and I'm not there, but this warrior mindset, if we can start to become aware and start to figure out where we are, try to figure out in real time, because a lot of times we can do it in hindsight, go, yeah, I really freaked out when they talked about COVID in the beginning, but now like I survived, it, you know, wasn't fun, but you know, I think I, I might be even better than I was before this because I, it's why there's the great recession. So many people left their jobs because they realized they didn't need to be in those jobs. Those jobs sucked. So now they're out there living life. That's amazing. That's so cool. But it could have been this horrible, really bad thing. It's not. And what we can do is recognize that you're stuck in traffic. You are late for a very important meeting. That thing comes and bubbles up in your gut or in your heart or in your head. Different people feel different places. When you feel that, can you go, whoa, what's that? That is, that's everything. If you can do that, if you can recognize it in real time, you go, whoa, that's, that's me being a victim right there. Like what? That's me being a pessimist. That's me trying to label this as positive. That's, or am I, and you go, wow, now can I 
in real time, and you're not going to, it takes practice, but over days, weeks, years, years, this takes a decade later, if you did this all the time and had constant awareness over it, over a decade, just like the words, 10,000 hours, it's just like the samurai, they dedicate their lives to this. Over decades, you can live in that state where you can't be touched. You can't be hurt. You can't be rattled. That's the level of mindset that we should all be aspiring to because that is, call it what you want, call it the warrior mindset, call it enlightenment, call it pure joy, call it um, the evolution of our consciousness, call it heaven on earth, finding God, whatever it is. That's the thing. That's where we want to be. That's as human beings, that's the highest point of our mind, body, and soul. So Ben, we both come from the CrossFit space. We've coached CrossFit classes, many of them. I'm hearing when you go through the pessimist, optimist, realist, I can already hear members that go through this. We hear this all the time. So I'm curious for the coaches out there and for myself, what do you do as a coach? How do you help one of your members go from one to two? I'm thinking of somebody, you know, it's, it's, it's summertime. It's hot out right now. Oh, of course we're running today. It's hot outside. How do you, as a coach, help them from get to level one to level two, level two to level three? What's, what's some of that vernacular like? Yeah, so I want to just um, caveat this because before we get into it, because when people hear this, they go, oh, that's a cool tactic and they'll jump into it. You can't use it before you've established trust. You can't do anything. So if someone like, I don't do that a lot of times unless you have to be very sensitive to your relationship with that athlete. Because if you go and use one of these tactics, then they go like, well, that, Coach Ben's a dick. Like, like, who the hell does he think he is? I said it was like hot outside. And of course, we're going to run. And he gave me this, you know, stupid Ben spiel. Like, um, so you have to create a relationship first, always. Um, but then it's just the same thing. It's awareness. You're just your job there is to just bring awareness to that moment. It's why I think it's really powerful to have the conversations of levels of mindset, because in peacetime, people get it. They go, yep, that makes sense. Yep. There's victims and there's pets. Got it. I'd like to be a realist or a warrior too. Like that sounds awesome. But when you call them in real time, they're going to get defensive. Of course they are because you're calling somebody out. You're quote unquote attacking them. We have a defense mechanism. If someone in our tribe attacks us, we need to protect ourselves because in evolution of biology, what that meant in tribal society, we might be kicked out of the tribe. If we're kicked out of the tribe, we have to survive in the woods by ourselves. We're going to die. So literally someone giving someone feedback is the same thing as them attacking them physically. You could get hurt or die. So you have to do it very tactfully. It's really nice to establish the language and the framework in peacetime when they're not complaining. Mm. If somebody goes, it's super hot outside, of course we're gonna run. And we go, that's a pessimistic mindset. They go, F you coach Ben. Like, but if you had that conversation beforehand and you go, you, you know what, you don't have to run. You're right, you don't have to run. You can stay inside and bike. It'd be a lot easier, you're right. Good, you can, you, would, would you prefer to bike? And there you go, well, everyone else is running. It's like, okay, so, if everyone else is running and you're going to run and you're complaining about it, are you helping yourself and everyone else? Or are you bringing awareness to something negative outside of your control? And it's, it's kind of as simple as that. Yeah. And they go, are, that's really okay, good. Like, yeah. Keep, keep going. Keep going. It, it's just like they, you're just trying to bring a softly awareness to it and you're not trying to put anyone down. 
Um, that's why we have all these little mantras and sayings. You named a bunch of them when we started off, but you don't have to, you get to, you know, it's all these little types of things. We have the white bracelets, you know, I have, I'm wearing one now if people aren't watching, but when someone complains, it's a white bracelet that says never whine, never complain, never make excuses on it. If someone says, I can't believe to run, it's so hot outside. We just right next to them go, that hurt me. It's just bringing awareness. And it's like, nothing's going to change it as a coach or a um, co-worker or a peer or a parent, we shouldn't be looking to make change off of that one conversation. That's not the way, if you have an amazing student with an incredible curiosity and growth mindset and all those things that we've already talked about, it could happen. That's not most of us. So what most of us need to do is just like go drip, 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 and it can be soft. Just be like, it doesn't need to be a big lecture. It doesn't need to be a big moment. Just a little bits of awareness all the time. Yeah, great advice. I think now that I think about it more, Ben, it's it's sometimes it's mind blowing because the awareness I think is the major focal point of this whole thing. Because I know people that are at the level one, the victim mindset, the worst one you could be. Yet if you were to bring this up to them or they were listen to this podcast, they might sit in their car and go, "Well, I know that's not me." And everybody else in the room is like pointing, like that. That's you. So yep. awareness is just got to be the focal point. How does one, it's going to be a big question here. How does one become more aware? So this is the evolution of consciousness. This is what it is. What has happened is we're completely distracted. And there are two minds inside of you. There is the habitual mind, which is on autopilot. It's just programmed. And that mind is not going to figure this out. Then there is the willful mind, which is where you pop up and you actually can um, see the programming that you're running on. You're hardwired for this to happen. If you see a bee, you freak out because you're allergic to bees. That is a, it happens so fast. We think it's automatic. It's not. When you were a kid, you got stung by a bee. You had this crazy allergic reaction. Mom and dad rushed you to the hospital. It was this big traumatic event. So you stored that inside of you. So now when you see bees, that leads to a physical response of stress. But it seems like it's hardwired. Whereas my other friend grew up on a bee farm. Bees are the, are the center of the universe. They're the pollinators. They're the things that make everything else go wrong. Nature depends on bees. He had hundreds of thousands of bees as pets and care for them. He loves bees. So every time he sees a bee, he's brought back to his childhood of love and caring and harmony with nature. It's, we're, we, we think that it's this, so it's this. We're not. And until someone pops up from that level of awareness, you can't, you, you can't do any of this stuff. That's why there's so many tactics. There's so many tools that you can do to pop up out of that. One that's really popular right now is meditation, mindfulness, journaling, reading, creating space and quiet, getting out into nature. Nature actually has all these cool like vibration things that actually do help. Like if you're by a waterfall, there's these ions that it gives off. If you're by a beach, like, so there's a lot of things that you can do. None of them are right or wrong. The, the, the wrong thing to do is to not do anything and just go, 
he's not talking about me. That's, that's the danger because then you're living in the matrix and yeah, ignorance can be bliss. If you just want to keep, keep doing that. And a lot of people are happy being unhappy. They actually assign meaning to their lives by being unhappy. They, we as human beings hate uncertainty and want control. Being unhappy and complaining gives people a sense of control. Because if you just complain about the other side of the political spectrum, you're way far one side, you complain about the other side, that internally goes like, yep, I got this. I'm important. I figured this out. They're so wrong. And it elevates you. That's a really detrimental place to be because all you're doing is people think ego is like, I'm the best. Victims have the biggest ego of anybody. Right. There's so many different levels of narcissism and victim narcissism is one of the biggest. Another one is drug addicts. They try to create important or people like cutters, people that like self mutilate that people like, um, the obvious victim is the ones that like are, are victims of, of, of abuse, but like pop up out of that. You don't need to live that way. You don't need to live that way. You can choose. We have this thing inside of us called the willful mind and the willful mind is more important, more more powerful than anything else on earth. Like you can do anything with the willful mind. If you want to stop drinking, you know what you do? You stop drinking. That's it. People go, no, like I'm addicted. It's, it's, it's like you right now, like you can tell your body to do anything. You right now, if I said, I want you to um, wiggle your finger or you and you wiggle your finger. If I say, okay, I want you to do something like not physically. I want you to in your own head, I want you to um, um, say the word David Goggins in your head. Let's do it right now. You just did it. That was a willful act. You told your mind to do that. So you can tell your mind to do things. You can tell your body to do things. Nobody else needs to have control over that whatsoever. Yet, we let all of these outside forces influence us. And this is the defining characteristics between the warrior and the victim. The warrior is only concerned of what's going on inside. They see everything as a challenge to better their character. This is something that I, it's going to make me uh, more formidable. I can work on my patience here. I could work on my grit. I could work on my... Um, uh, mental toughness, the thing we talked about earlier. I could work on uh, being more loving and more present and having more joy in this moment. Whereas the victim goes, um, I need to change the outside. I need, to, I need to bring my spouse. I need to bring my spouse to therapy. It's not me. My spouse needs to go to therapy. It's I need to change the political world. I need to fix um, what's happening in my neighborhood because my neighbor is a dink and dot, dot, dot. The victim looks at all the outside things and tries to get them all to line up the way they want to. And if they don't, they complain about it. Whereas the warrior isn't trying to change the outside at all. They're trying to seek out the challenges because they know what's on the other side of them. Another thing that I think about the difference between warrior and victim is, and it's, and it's a biblical passage, but the idea of to be slow to speak and quick to listen. I think when we talk about, you have a great fable story of the farmer and why don't you tell that real quick? And then we'll dive into more. Um, so the farmer being the one that uh, some adversity happens and he, he uses perspective. Mm -hmm. so, okay. So huh, I actually just told the story to my class this morning. So that's so funny you said that. Um, so there's a wise old farmer that lives on top of a hill. 
and he has a single son and a single horse and he has some land that he um, cultivates. One day, the son leaves the fence open and the horse runs away. And the village people come running up to the top of the, the, the hill where the farmer is and they say, oh my gosh, this is so terrible. How are you even going to survive? Like, what are you going to do? Your only horse ran away. This is terrible. And he said, we'll see. Three days later, the horse returns and he brings back four other horses. He's now the richest guy in the entire village. He has so much, so many assets. He's quadrupled his wealth. The village people come running up to the wise old farmer. They're like, this is amazing. You're now the richest guy in the whole town. This is incredible. You are so lucky. He says, we'll see. The next day, the son is trying to tame the wild horses and he gets fucked off and he breaks his arm. And the village people come running up and they say, oh my gosh, this is so terrible. Your son broke his arm. He can't tend to the fields. This is horrific. What are you going to do? And he says, we'll see. Two weeks later, the village comes under attack and the military from the town goes from house to house, recruiting all the young men to join the, the, the battle in this bloodshed. And they're losing man after man after man, but they have to pass over the farmer's son because of his broken arm. The idea behind that is, we don't have enough perspective in the present moment to know whether things are actually good or bad for us. This is what I was talking about earlier with the cancer. It's Katrin not making the games. Katrin would never have won the games had she not, not made it that year. Even Matt Fraser, when I trained him, he's been, he said a bunch of times, if he had made the games the first year he went to regionals, that first event at that games, what he had no cardio whatsoever, but he came in, one spot away from making the Northeast regional. The first event at that year's games was a half marathon row. That would have, he's like, that would have destroyed me. I would have been so miserable. I would have quit the sport. I might not have finished the games right then. And I would have been out. So him not making the games that year is actually the reason he became. So we're so quick to assign like, this is good. This is bad. When we don't have the perspective on actually what this does mean. We, we, and it's, I, don't, I don't fault us for it. It's just part of who we are as human beings is we assign meaning to things. Quickly. Because, because it, yeah, really quickly. Because it helps us survive. Like the big furry thing with the claws, stay away from that because it might kill you. The other furry thing with the little paws, like that, that's a cute little thing that you, know, you can snuggle up with. It's really important to label things good, bad. But what we actually even do more so is we really like to um, address the negative because it's, we're like five times more um, um, likely to associate with the negative than we are the positive because it's better to know what will kill you than what will taste really good. And it, does, it doesn't serve us at this point, us trying to label everything and try to figure out whether it's good or bad, when instead what we should be doing, think of the farmer. If he freaked out and then celebrated about every one of those things, he's riding this emotional roller coaster. When what we should be doing, like a pendulum, is trying to be sit center. This is what it means to be centered. The other side of that is like the pendulum swings way far on one side. And if you are way far on one side, it has to pass through center and come back to the other side. And I'm not saying just be, don't, don't enjoy life, don't have feelings, but just moderate the swings a little bit side to side because it's great to have joy and passion and fun and excitement, but you can have that and also experience sorrow and disappointments 
and uh, regrets, but they don't need to, to like, they don't, you, you don't need to live. You don't need to set your life up for the two weeks of vacation that you have. You can have that every single day. And when something traumatic happens, it doesn't need to destroy you. It can be a thing that you experience. It passes through you and you are right back to center. The faster we can get back to center, the more productive we can be with our lives. Mm-hmm. I think the victim is a little bit more quick trigger. They want to label things quickly, even speak quickly, kind of like edge out like that. And the warrior to me is a little bit more patient, even maybe more calm with their speaking. And they just wait a little bit longer to see how things unfold. Would you agree? Yeah, completely. And I would say um, um, the word there that I really like that you pulled out is calm. Calm is awesome. <laughs> Calm is what we should be seeking. Calm is, think of like a calm mind. Think of a calm lake. A calm lake is beautiful. Mm -hmm. You can do a lot with a calm lake. When a lake is stormy, there's not much you can do with it. And it's actually dangerous. That's where most of us live. And if something bad happens, what we do is um, we we try to get the water to be still again. And we try and we try to solve this thing. And when we do that, we just start causing more disturbances. When actuality, the thing to do to get the water to be calm again is, you tell me, what's the way you let water, how do you get water to be calm again? Wait. Yeah, you let it be. Mm-hmm. You just, if, if you don't disturb it, mm-hmm. if water is not disturbed, it's calm. Well, just, this is what we were talking about earlier. You're distracted, you're disturbed, you're away from center. You're focusing on things outside of your control. When you pull it all the way back to how can I become a better being myself, internal, not external, the water's calm. And a calm mind is a great mind. Awesome. I want to talk about your other framework, awareness, intention, action. We talked about this a little bit at the Granite Games. I had some ideas. I want to just open it up a little bit for people that haven't heard it. Can you open up uh, what is awareness, intention, action? How does it look? How can people use it? And then also, uh, Ben, how can coaches use it? Yeah, so we talked about awareness already quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, awareness is the, the, the door that opens up all else. Without awareness, if you're an alcoholic and you don't know you're an alcoholic, nothing's gonna, you can't do anything about it. If you um, are unaware of what's going to make for a fulfilled life for you, you're just going to be chasing rabbits all over the place and climbing ladders, leaning up against the wrong wall. We need awareness. We need awareness of what it is that we want, what it is that we're doing. Then once you have that awareness, we need to bring intention to that. So it's not, it's, awareness is one thing, but without intention, we are, we're not really doing a whole lot. So the intention is like the game plan. It's the, it's the strategy. So if I want a fulfilled life, I want to awareness of what that means to me. So it means a peace of mind. It means great relationships with my family. It means um, health with mind, body, and spirit. Great. Okay. So if I want those things, what are the, what's the, how do I intentionally chase those things? Well, I'm going to list out 20 things that I want to do on a weekly basis to make sure I get there. To make sure I have good relationships, I'm going to have family dinners. I'm going to make sure I go to all of my kids' practice, sports practices. I'm going to be home by six o'clock every night. I am going to um, read to my kids and snuggle them every single night. Great, because now I have this intention. And then even the best laid plans mean nothing, nothing, nothing. It's just 
words that you're throwing into the universe unless you bring them into action. You actually have to do it. Take massive action. And even, um, you know, it's uh, the saying is um, um, uh, uh, intention without action is just a dream and action without intention is just is a nightmare. So it's like we need um, we need to be able to put the the right movements in place and in practice and then start taking the steps to get there. And over time, a little bit of patience, over time, these things manifest awareness, intention, action into really special, incredible things. You can kind of manifest anything that you want with that framework. Where do you think self-reflection fits in that process? Yeah, uh, I think that that's um, twofold. It's part of awareness and it's part of, it's across, it, it lays across the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you can almost put like, like blanket on top because it could be a practice that you're doing self-awareness. It could be you meditating. It could be you journaling. It could be you talking to um, a friend or a psychologist. Um, that's the action of it. It could be something that you, um, you feel like is important in your life. That's awareness to be able to do that. And then you need to actually create the, whatever it is, the framework, the schedule, the process to be able to put that into place. So it's one of those things that I think is massively important. You know, they, the saying is um, know thyself. Um, I think it's Socrates or Aristotle. And it's one of the most important things you can do. Um, So self-reflection is a huge thing. And I think it, without it, you're, you're going to kind of, um, you're going to start spinning a wheel and maybe not going anywhere Mm -hmm. because you may think that you want to, um, you know, make a quarter million dollars a year, but that's not actually what you're chasing. What you're actually chasing is the freedom that comes from making a quarter million dollars a year. So having that self-awareness is really impactful because that changes the intention and the action. So we need to spend some time thinking about that. And my take on this is build, measure, learn, like jump and grow wings on the way down. You don't need to get it all figured out before you do this because inevitably it's going to change. What you are seeking in your 20s is not the same thing you'd be seeking in your 40s, which is not the same thing you'd be seeking in your 60s. It shouldn't be. We're different beings. We've learned so much. We've had so many different experiences. The world has changed so much. So we don't need to get this all figured out before we create a plan and before we take action. This should be a constant circle where we are self-reflective, we're creating a plan and we're taking action. And then we're being reflective on that and we're creating awareness, we're modifying the plan and we're taking more action. What we can't be afraid to do is change the course of the direction because we should always, this is my saying, this is what chasing excellence is. We should be chasing our North star and your North star can move across the horizon. It's not a pinpoint that you pinpoint when you're six years old and go, I want to be a firefighter when I grow up. And it's like firefighter or nothing. And you realize that when you're um, 25, you've been through fire school that actually what you want to do is be an artist. Cool. Like go be an artist. Now you have so much of your life to live. You don't need to be pigeonholed into anything. How can a CrossFit coach use this model with one of their either one-on-one clients or one of their members? What, what, what would that look like? Yeah. I don't know if I would go like framework like this and be like, 
let's create some awareness around, but it's essentially, it's going, what are your goals? That's the awareness. Like that's, that's what it is. Okay. Why are those your goals? Okay. Someone says like, I want to, um, um, I want to lose, uh, 20 pounds. Okay. Why do you want to lose 20 pounds? And what they actually are saying is I want more confidence when I walk on the beach. And then you can go like, well, because if it's just lose 20 pounds, it's really easy. Like eat less, <laughs> eat less. It's like, just starve yourself. You'll, you'll lose the weight. But if it's that they want to look better when they're walking down the beach, it's like, okay, maybe we need to add some muscle. Maybe we need, um, you know, to do some strength training. Maybe we need to buy a better fitting bathing suit. Like we, we can figure it out. Uh, and then you create the, the plan of action and take the action after that. So it really helps kind of just put into practice. And, and that's the, that is the goal, by the way. So what you want to do is, I've talked about this before, but the, when, you, when we talk about goals, there's a framework for goals as well, which is the whoopee. Um, WH is wish and hope. What do you want? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you want? I want to turn heads when I walk down the beach. Awesome. Cool. What is the ob specific objective there? Now, now, now you've got that. What is it specifically you want to do? Well, I want to have um, 6% body fat and um, have the, um, not just a skinny 6% body fat. I want a 6% body fat and be able to bench press 315. Cool. Now we specifically know what we're chasing. Obstacle. So WHO, the next O is the obstacles. What's going to keep you from getting those? Well, um, I work uh, a really high pressure job and we have corporate dinners um, three times a week where it's this big steak dinner and everyone's drinking and I actually haven't been to the gym in um, three years. Okay, cool. We, that's, those are some big obstacles that we have to overcome. What's the plan? What is the plan to do this? So now we have the obstacles. We, we can devise a plan. Most people just devise a plan in a vacuum. They go, okay, you want that? Let's train five days a week. We'll do a day of buys and tries and back and, and we'll do other days of cardio and we'll do some high intensity and interval stuff. And well, dude, like the guy just told you without, without knowing the struggles, without knowing the obstacles, we're just, it's, it's a, it's a pipe dream. It's, it's nonsense. So then once you got the wish and the hope, the objective, the obstacles and the plan, then the most important parts is the I, which is when you identify as somebody that does the plan. I am the type of, so this individual, when they say, I am the type of person that can go to a corporate dinner and not drink alcohol. I am the type of person that when everyone else is ordering desserts, I have an extra glass of water. I am the type of person that doesn't uh, dip from the bed basket. I am the type of person that only eats meats and vegetables. I am the type of person that gets up at 5 a.m. to do my high-intensity interval training in my basement for 30 minutes every day, no matter what I did the night before. What, when you get to that level, mm -hmm. okay, now we're, because we are, we so we have a confirmation bias. We so badly want to be the person that we say that we are. Like I'm a partier. So like you go and you party more than anyone else at the party. You're, uh, a, you know, a, a, um, you're emotional. Guess what? If you think that you're emotional, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be emotional. And then the last part is you execute. You just go in. So it's W-H-O-O-P-I identity and execution because until even with all like the, I am the type of person that 
until you actually do get up at 5 a.m., you haven't done anything. Until you actually do say no to the bread basket, you haven't done anything. Until you actually do say no to the alcohol at the dinner, you haven't done anything. And that's a dangerous part because the talking about it creates a dopamine response, which actually gives you the feeling of actually doing it. It's why people always talk about starting a diet, but they're going to start on Monday. Start on Monday. <laughs> exactly. No one says, I'm going to start a diet. And they're sitting at dinner and they go, I'm going to do it right now. That's the doing it. That's the doing it. So unless you're going to do it right now, you're tricking yourself. You're literally, and it's a dopamine thing that's giving you the feel goods because it's, it's just, it's, uh, you know, and every, all these like social media things have figured out how to hack that thing by giving you all the little dopamine hits. Yeah. Cool. I have one more question. That I've been really just itching to ask you. And um, I've been a big basketball fan ever since I was a kid. One of my favorite players to watch my childhood was Kobe Bryant and his, I always loved his competitiveness, his toughness, and just his overall skill with the basketball is just mesmerizing. And his death still shakes me up to this day. It's just, I, I mean, I've never met him. I don't know him, but it just was like, it just seemed too soon and obviously super tragic. But um, one of the things that has come out of his sad, tragic death is a lot of stories being told and a lot of his interviews are coming out and stories that have never been told before because they're reminiscing and sharing some of the things and I don't know if you've heard any of his stories but some of them are incredible they're they're funny and they really tell a story about what kind of guy he was and there's a specific one uh, a clip that's gone viral on multiple platforms and over the last couple of years and it was a conversation that Kobe had post in a post-game interview uh, during the NBA finals uh, the Lakers just took a 3-0 lead in the NBA finals he sits down at the podium and he's got no smile on his face and the the report Porter says, Kobe, what's wrong? You're up 3-0 and you look like you just came off a horrific loss. And Kobe shakes his head and he goes, job's not finished. Reporter responds, but you're up 3-0. You had an incredible game. You're one game away from being champion. Shouldn't you be happy? And Kobe says, is the series over? No, job's not finished. They ended up winning the NBA title, of course, and then the Mamba mentality was born. Similar to you, Ben, I coach CrossFit classes, as I mentioned. I also work with one-on-one -on -one with athletes who have specific goals in the CrossFit space. But one of the lessons I try to teach, and this comes back to being a transformational coach, is to enjoy the process, enjoy the journey, and celebrate wins along the way. And I don't know about you, Ben, but the large majority of people that I find myself working with, whether it's in class or whether they're completing at something like the Granite Games, they'll hit a big lift, do a PR, or do something they never even thought they were capable of doing. And I find myself being more excited than they are and I'm pumped and I said man wasn't that awesome and the, the response is usually yeah but I, I want more or yeah that's yeah. Not, it's just still not good enough I want 10 pounds more so my question for you Ben is how do you get your members and also competitive athletes if this is the the area we're talking about being a transformational coach how do you get them to find joy along the journey enjoy those wins because I feel like personally if you don't it's going to be a long road. And then when it's done, you're just looking back like that wasn't that great. So I know it's a lot of talking. Tell me about how you get them to find joy if you believe in that during the process, even if it's something little. And even if it's a member who's a mom at 50 years old or a CrossFit Games Aspire. The, I don't believe that there's a right or a wrong approach to like celebrating the small wins or the mob mentality. And to me, it goes into this idea of balance versus obsession. Kobe was obsessed. And that was the big thing about him was he was going to outwork everybody. And he said, I have no balance in my life. I know I can beat you because while you're spending time with your family, I'm not like as, as single pointed intention as he had, and as much of a competitor he was, 
And I think he became a really good dad later in his life. I think that if he was around today, he would still tell you like he was not a good dad in his early playing careers. That was kind of like highlighted a lot in the media. So I'm not gonna say in order to become an all-time great, you need obsession, but it is one of the strategies. Michael Phelps, you know, the, the, the legendary, you know, uh, training sessions that he did where, you know, he would do 10 miles of swimming a day. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of Michael Jordan to this day is continually still obsessed. Um, I, but there, you know, Lance Armstrong, um, there's a lot of success that can come with being obsessed. But what's to, important to me is how you define success. Is success wins and losses, trophies and accolades, or is success joy, um, passion, being in the moment, connection? And I'm not here to judge or say one, one is better than the other because I don't know which one's better. But I think it's really important for people to understand, again, with awareness, what it is that they're chasing. Because if you are chasing one and doing the other, you're, gonna, you're more likely to come up short. Now, there are the rare examples of you know, people that um, do have balance. Like there's a, a couple of great golfers that were, had great family lives and were still able to be number one on the tour. There's a, a, a speed skater that um, just broke the record for the, the 10K in the last Olympics. Um, incredible. I, he was pretty obsessed with his training, but he still managed to have uh, beers on Friday and Saturday nights and spend time with friends. So there, there is this thing of like obsession versus balance. And um, one of the things that I am chasing is balance. So I want in my life to never, I don't think it's a seesaw. I don't think it's like career um, and family. I think it's multifaceted between health, passions, career, family, relationships, self-betterment, and all of those things. And it's never perfectly balanced. It's always going to slightly lean one way. At certain times, like my health and my performance gym is awesome. And then other times I'm putting more effort into the business. And other times I'm spending more time with the family. And other times it's more about uh, my own passions and pursuits. and whatever. But the idea is, if that is a Frisbee balanced on, I guess, like an upside down Frisbee or a really shallow bowl, upside down on a stick or a pencil, you just don't want to spill the water inside of it. It's okay if it tilts to one side, but recognize where it's going and just kind of bring it back to center. That to me requires what you said, enjoying the process, because otherwise you are miserable for an unknown period of time. And you don't know if you're going to get to the finish line. And what the heck is the finish line? Right. Is the finish line when you've won the NBA title? If it is, then what you've said is it's not just the small wins of like somebody PRing a lift, celebrating and going like, okay, now what's next? Because it's never enough. Never enough. It's right. never going to be enough. It's really sad when you ask, you know, your story is the same as Tom Brady's, by the way, when he, was, when he moved from um, um, New England to Tampa Bay. And he brought the team to the Super Bowl for the first time. They just won the NFC championship. He goes in the locker room and there's these players crying because they're so happy 
that they made it to the Super Bowl. He goes, what the hell are you doing? They're like, huh? He goes, you think this is it? You think this is it? Our job's not done. So it's the same type of thing. Like instead of enjoying, and again, it's not right or wrong. He won, you know, seven Super Bowls because of that mentality. You could say he has this amazing life because of that. Or you could go, no, like it's actually the second string kicker on the 500 team that actually has the most fulfilled life. And we don't know. We don't know. That's why we don't want to label things as right or wrong, good or bad. We don't have the perspective right now of knowing what the right path is. But if we can be introspective, as you said, look at it and go, what is going to bring me the most fulfillment? And I don't, you know, probably on my deathbed is, I guess, the only place that you go, that's the finish line. I don't really know if there's another one. On my deathbed, when I look back, what is it that I'm going to wish I had pursued? What is it that I'm going to wish I had put my attention towards? What is it that I wish I had um, brought into my life and pushed away from my life? That to me is the introspection that we should all be asking ourselves all the time. And I, I feel pretty confident we're not going to go, I'm really glad I got pissed off at that guy that cut me off in traffic. Like you're not even going to remember that in five years. So that gives a little bit of perspective into the present moments, just a little bit. If we can go, is this going to matter in five years? If it's not, let it pass through. There are things that are going to matter in five years. Like if your kid gets sick, that might be something you want to bring a fair amount of attention to because where attention goes, energy flows. If you give it to the guy in traffic, man, that's just, that is a colossal waste of your energy. If you give it to your, um, your child who's sick, that could be a great use of your energy that you get to the de your deathbed. You go, I'm so glad I, whatever it is, I came home every day at lunch to have lunch with my kid, that I um, um, read him a story every single night, that I, whatever it is that you feel like is the right action to take there, but do it with hindsight in the present moment. Cool. Want to close down? We just got a couple minutes left. Talk about your new book, Unlock Your Potential. I, maybe it's, maybe it's not new anymore, but it's new to most people. Uh, talk to me a little about the book. Don't spill the, all the beans, of course, but talk to me a little about trust. Why you why you uh, decided to write the book, and maybe just some nuggets that we can start to implement into our lives right now. Yeah. What I um so in addition to being a coach, I also own a few businesses, um, small businesses, um, but businesses that have taught me a lot. <laughs> over the last 15 years. And it's basically the book that I wish I had when I was coming up as a leader because I was a terrible leader. Um, I, I didn't know how to communicate my vision. I didn't know how to create um, the right culture. I knew how to create a culture in the gym. I knew what I wanted there, but not the right work environment culture where people go above and beyond without asking. That's what I had no clue how to do. I didn't know how to delegate authority or responsibilities. I didn't know how to create the frameworks for a business. I didn't know how to get people to execute and uphold standards. I had no idea what all those things were. And I fumbled my way through for the first decade. And then for the last five years, I started basically, um, I don't say, I started learning from the mistakes and tried to build some frameworks. And that's essentially what the book is about, is the story of the growth of um, the, the gym that I have, which I now have uh, um, six, and um, 
the comp train business, which is um, the online. It's one that you follow. Um, so it's kind of the story of how it went from starting that up to all the growing pains in between and um, how I fumbled my way into a leadership position and what I've learned um, really in the last, what, what I've learned over the last 15, but put into practice in the last five. Yeah, it's so cool, man. Um, one of my, I've been, I've been through it twice. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the beginning, when you talk about flow, um, I had Steven Kotler on the show and we talked about individual flow, how do individuals try, try to get into flow. And some of them are the same, like complete concentration is a big one. Um, the skills to challenge ratio, which I know you guys talked about as well. Would you mind just closing down talking about what are some of the other ways that a group can get into flow? I'm just curious on how the group is different from the individual. Yeah, so the, the, the biggest, so first off, what a flow state is, is when, um, you're so passionately engaged in activity that you lose track of time. Um, there is no other thoughts anywhere. So what that means is, this is what we talked about earlier, you're not distracted. Now, again, the most common distractions are like the buzzers, the bleeps, the, the ones that come through the five senses. You know, someone pokes you, that's a distraction. Like you're plugging away, writing your manifesto and your little kid comes over and like kicks you in the shin. Big distraction, we know that. But there in the workplace, those are rampant. They're everywhere all the time from the emails coming in to someone like knocking on your door to um, so many things. But then there's another level of distractions that come in, which is um, not being on the same page. When people aren't as a team, not on the same page, the team cannot get into a flow state. An individual might, but it might be on a slightly different trajectory than somebody else. And what ends up happening is they go and create all this amazing stuff. Someone else creates all this amazing stuff, but it's on a different trajectory. They come together and like, well, what, what? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. We were supposed to do this for this target market. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? No, I thought we were doing this as a business plan. And now again, there's all this confusion and distraction. The most important thing that we need to do as a team whether that's a sports team, a business organization, a PTO, or a family, is get on the same page. Now, it starts with a few different things, starts really high level with values. So the example we use in the book is, people know this intuitively in a relationship. If you value hunting, you love to go out and forage for your own food. You think it's like the, the way humans were meant to provide. You want to go out and kill an elk and a buffalo and rabbit and deer, and you do it a lot. But your wife is a vegetarian, loves life PETA member, and you know we, we never want to hurt those values. You guys are going to clash. It's like it's 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 it would be so much easier if you got somebody on the same that valued the same things. From there, once you get to the values, then it becomes like a vision thing. And where are we going? And what are we trying to accomplish? And this is like where people talk about, you know, mission statements, but it's mission statements are so missed in organizations because they try and do one catch all phrase that tries to say, this is what we're doing. And, but inevitably it doesn't capture it. Or they try to go to one big, huge mission slash vision statement. And it's completely unmemorable and no one knows it anyway. What we talk about in the book is creating the framework of the four vision statements. The four things together are actually the way it's pieced together. 
And then from there, you go through and you disseminate into teams and you figure out how to hold people accountable in teams to get people to, these are the deliverables and these are the expectations, these are the standards. And now everybody is on the same page. And now they can go, 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 because everybody on the boat is rowing in the exact same direction. If you have a team of Olympic rowers, Olympic, Olympic rowers, but they're all off. Everyone thinks that the finish line is off by just a degree. I think it's at perfect north. You think it's at north minus one. Us, the other person thinks it's north minus one. The other person thinks it's north minus two and so on. At best, we're going to go at a fraction of our pace. But at worst, we might not go anywhere. We, we, we just, those rowers might just, the oars might just clang into each other. It might not go anywhere. This is a team of all A players. Now, if you got just a, a high school varsity rowing team and everyone rowed in the exact same direction, they're going to beat the A players. That's the importance of leadership and sharing, the, getting everyone on the same page. Interesting how both of them have a really big um, focus on complete concentration. I think that's got to be the foundation in both of them, right? Distractions. I, my, my first thought goes to phones. I think phones is the quickest way for you to get you out of, out of a flow state, emails, things like that, dings, anything that does stuff like that. I think it's just, uh, it speaks volumes that not only in team or group flow, but also individual flow, the quickest way to get out is to get distracted. So just the value of making sure your environment is manicured to eliminate distractions. Yeah, so we've actually uh, internally, I don't think I've talked about this in the book, because, uh, um, but internally, we've actually done a lot to create the environment, which I love that word, so that we are um, trying to promote as much of a possibility of a flow state as possible. Um, we have what we call deep work Wednesdays, um, which means that you are not allowed to have a meeting, you are not allowed to do email, you are not allowed to do um um, I'm blanking on it. Slack. You, you can't do any text messages. It's your day to get into your deep flow state. And that's one day a week. And that's like, you know, that's 20% of our work, but at least we're getting that. We have frameworks for other days of the week as well, but that's the one day that we are saying we are eliminating all distractions. One full work day where we do not have um, any scheduled or non-scheduled distractions. Yeah, so cool. Uh, a lot of the book is about trust. So my last question is, I know this is the loaded question because you'd have to read the book, but one thing that a gym owner can do, Ben, to create more trust either with their staff or with their members, if you were to say one, maybe even I'll give you a couple, if you have three, one to three, what are one to three things that they could do? Um, so I'll do, I'll do three. I'll do, um, I'll do three. Of course, it's the way I work, so I'll do it as an alliteration. Cool. Um, you have to show that you care. Like it's, it's, it's so like this, everyone's, everyone listening around is going to do the eye roll. Like, of course, show you care, but no one knows how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, it's George Washington's form of leadership, which is listen, learn, and then lead. Most people come in and try to flip over the poker table and just try to like, this is the way we're going to do it. And when you listen there, you're showing that you care. The next one is consistency. You, it's one of the most 
underrated aspects of small business is, is doing things consistently. If you're constantly changing up the way you run classes, if you're constantly changing up your schedule, your pricing, your programming, who's coaching classes, it's really hard for anyone to get into their own flow state because they're constantly trying to readjust. Consistency is king in business. It's actually, customers have actually through studies shown that they would prefer consistent than, su than superior service. They actually want to know because we, we hate uncertainty. Right. You said that earlier. It's just the power of expectation. Yeah. That's right. And then the, the third one is um, competence. <laughs> it's like the, you, you got to know your stuff. So leaders, it's really hard to fo follow a leader that's, um, you know, isn't producing results. So care, consistency, and competency. Be an expert in your field. Very cool. And this is awesome, man. I have uh, two pages full of notes here. I really ah. appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. How can my uh, listeners support you on what you got going on? Is there anything you want to promote? Yeah, I think um, we put a lot of content on um, CompTrain. So CompTrain, it's an online training platform. Um, CompTrain.com is the website. Um, I'm at Ben Bergeron on Instagram. Um, but if you're interested in, uh, you know, combining the mindset stuff with uh, training, uh, especially if you're a competitive CrossFitter, Comp Train's the, Comp Train's the platform. Cool. Do you have a book? I was going to ask this earlier. Do you have a book you like to recommend for people? Obviously, yours is a great one. Is there another one that you, if, if somebody's like, man, I really like this mindset stuff that Ben's talking about, where could I go? Oh, there's, uh, so you mentioned one with Carol Dweck and mindset. I think that's foundational. If you haven't read that, I would definitely, but that to me is like almost a cop-out answer. The second <laughs> cop-out answer would be, Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. Those are two, like, you know, in the world of like that we live in, like, those are like, oh, uh, that's like the summer reading. You know, right. it should be done before you take the right. course. The price of admission. Yeah. Um, I've really liked um, Nate Zinzer's The Confident Mind. Yeah. We had um, him on the a, show. Yeah. yeah. It's a recent one that I've, I've read. We had him on our show as well. Um, um, I like that. I start with that one. Yeah, that works. That's awesome, man. Cool. Thanks again for taking the time, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.